Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Coming up on today's show, reforming teacher disciplinary process in Alberta. Long overdue, says Adriana LaGrange, the Minister of Education. We'll hear from her and we'll also hear from Sarah Hoffman, the Alberta NDP education critic. Flair Airlines could be grounded early next month. They could lose their license to operate in Canada. We'll find out why. Should Justin Trudeau head to Ukraine to meet with Zelensky in Kiev? There's a lot of people saying, yeah, he should, just like Boris Johnson of the UK did. Alberta is proposing new rules. Basically what they're talking about doing, it's Bill 15, and basically what it would do is um, no longer let the Alberta Teachers Association be in charge of disciplining teachers in the province of Alberta. Instead, it would be dealt with by um, an arm's length commissioner. So so it removes it from the union um, representing teachers who have been handling it up until now and puts it in the hands of an independent commissioner. Um, why do we need to make this change? Let's find out. We're going to chat now with um, Government of Alberta Education Minister Adriana LaGrange. Uh, Minister LaGrange, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Shane. Let's Happy just get some of the details there. on this bill and to find out, define exactly what it talks about doing. Um, first of all, this commissioner. Who, who is the commissioner? How will they be selected? Right. The commissioner role uh, will be uh, selected through a um, um, an RFP process, an independent process. They will apply as anyone can apply for any government position. Um, this position then will be approved uh, by a cabinet. Uh, the skill set that we're looking for is very much similar to what uh, British Columbia has for their commissioner uh, for teacher discipline. And their commissioner, um, his skill set is he was a former ombudsman. He was a um, uh, has an extensive uh, legal background and just very highly ethical, highly skilled individual. Those are the type of um, characteristics we're looking for. Uh, just to draw that contrast out a little further, you mentioned British Columbia and the situation that they have. Um, is Alberta really the only jurisdiction right now where discipline is left up to the Teachers Association? Does everybody else have an independent commissioner set up like the one you're proposing? Uh, they have varying uh, arm's length approaches, um, but uh, Alberta is the only Canadian province where the teachers' union does have the sole responsibility set out in legislation to deal with discipline for their active members uh, with no other alternative. That is true of Alberta, and it is not true of any other province in Canada. Nor is it true of other professions when we look at the nursing profession or pharmacists or other professions. They also have arm's length approaches um, others, other than the union dealing with disciplinary matters. Now we've had this system for I believe more than 80 years in the province of Alberta. Why do we need to make a change? Is there a problem? Why, why are you proposing this needs to be done? Well, other ministers in the past have proposed it as well, um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into those details, but um, certainly what I've seen uh, since I took office is that there are uh, perceived biases, there are gaps that need to be addressed. We really want, um, we currently have two um, disciplinary systems that function in Alberta, one for those teachers that belong under the Alberta Teachers Association, and then there's another um, under the registry of 
for those teachers that are non-union members, non-ATA members, such as uh, teachers in charter schools, independent schools, First Nations schools, ECSs. So what we're really looking to do is to create one discipline process that is the best for students, their families, the public interest, and the teaching profession as a whole. Uh, so, uh, you know, really looking at um, ensuring that we're, we're modernizing it, that we're not outliers in um, Canada, when we look at the teaching profession or other professions and making sure that uh, we have a system that parents and the public can have confidence in. Just so I'm clear, when you're talking about bias, are you saying that teachers are being given um, or the Teachers Association is being lenient on teachers because of the fact that they represent them? I mean, are you saying that an independent commissioner would be... um, more reliable to meet out discipline appropriately? Are you saying that the ATA is showing bias and not doing the job uh, appropriately? I'm saying that uh, what I have seen is that uh, for the vast majority of teachers in this province, they're amazing, caring individuals that have the best interest of students at heart. That is um, by far the vast majority of teachers. But when there is these difficult situations of unprofessional conduct or teacher incompetence, then we need a system that really is responsive and that the public can have confidence in that there is no perceived uh, or implied bias in the system and that uh, we do have um, an arm's length approach. And when we did look at, uh, when I brought in Bill uh, 85 last fall and it passed, uh, we had indicated at that time, I indicated at that time, that we were really looking to further improve the system. So what I brought in in the fall was an expedited process. So if someone is, a teacher is criminally convicted of a serious uh, crime that would harm children, then they do not have to go through a whole long hearing process as well, which typically happens now. They go through a criminal hearing, then they have to go through an ATA hearing. That will no longer be in place. We're, we're going to have an online registry where every teacher, teacher leader um, who is in this province who is certificated will be on the list. And if their certification is removed for um, or suspended or cancelled, they will then, a parent or any public member can go onto that public-facing registry and see why their registry or their certification was cancelled. Uh, we've also mandated uh, criminal and vulnerable sector checks. This, this is mandated now for teachers starting in September and for every five years after while they're in their employed in the teaching profession and we've streamlined other structures so this is just a, a further continuation of improving the overall disciplinary system again to um, ensure that parents and students and teachers themselves as well as the general public have confidence in the system Um, Minister, when you talk about confidence in the system and the perception of conflict of interest or perception of bias, um, let me put this back on you because, of course, you know the allegation is, well, this new system just sets it up in the reverse. It puts all the power ultimately in your lap. You choose this commissioner, they serve at your pleasure, and you make the final decision. You can overrule what this commissioner says anyway. So basically, you're the final voice in terms of discipline over teachers. That, um, you know, that really is, um, I would have to say, Shay, this would be the worst power grab ever because it really does not give me any additional powers as the Minister of Education. So you don't have final say? You can't overrule the Commissioner's decision? 
um, that that um, ability exists right now with um, the processes that are in place right now. The um, the Minister of Education has the final say, but it goes through the process um, of when the commissioner, through an open competition, will be uh, chosen, and then he will also have he or she will have a commission office with independent investigators. This commissioner will be able to take a complaint, regardless of where it comes from, and it can come from a teacher, it can come from a student, it can come from a parent, it can come from um, a principal or superintendent, and they can follow that complaint all the way through. And there is no, as I said earlier, perceived bias because they are not the union in charge of also um, publicly advocating uh, for their 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 members. The when we look at a commissioner role, again, it's a very arm's length, but at the end of the day, those decisions do go to the minister, um, as they have in the past, and the minister will, again, uh, be able to to decide on those those findings. Bill was tabled at the end of the month, right before uh, the session ended. What's your timeline on this? What are you hoping uh, in terms of when this new legislation may be in force? Well, I, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully the, the bill passing um, here in the next little while. Uh, we, of course, have a number of debate uh, sessions that it has to go through. And then once it passes, I anticipate that uh, we will be implementing this starting January of 2023. There's many uh, procedural um, and procedures and regulations that we have to put in force. But uh, we also want to make sure that uh, due process is carried out for those um, cases that are already ongoing so there will have to be a transitional period as well all of that is being factored in Uh, minister i I really appreciate your time thank you so much for joining us today my pleasure shay thank you so much you bet that is adriana lagrange who is the education minister for the alberta government all right we're talking about bill 15 in the province of alberta if you're just joining us essentially it's a proposal it's a bill that's been tabled by the alberta government that would take the disciplinary process for teachers in alberta out of the hands of the alberta teachers association the union that represents teachers the province saying that doesn't make sense doesn't happen anywhere else in the country it needs to be given to an independent commissioner so that's that's essentially the bottom line of this change um we just heard from minister lagrange now let's hear from the other side of the aisle we're going to chat with sarah hoffman the education critic for the ndp Uh, Ms. hoffman thanks so much for joining us today appreciate your time i'm happy to be here shay thanks for having me Bill 15, uh, it's, a, you know, it's been tabled. It's not legislation yet. Um, I, I read through your statement that you put out in response to the bill on uh, back on March 31st, and mm-hmm. you had a lot to say about the UCP, you had a lot to say about their treatment of teachers and education and curriculum and all the rest, but I didn't hear anything in your statement about Bill 15 itself. Do you have specific concerns about Bill 15? Do you see it as a problem? Yeah, I think that number one thing I want to highlight is that the timing of this and the motives behind it, clearly this isn't about discipline or safety. This is about harassment and pushing back against teachers who've been speaking up about education cuts and their concerns with the curriculum. The minister in the lead up to all of this said she wanted to treat teachers like other professionals in Alberta and no other teacher or professional in Alberta would have um, their ability to practice determined solely by the minister. That is uh, ludicrous. It's disrespectful. Well, they certainly uh, wouldn't have their ability to practice determined by the union that represents them either. 
So let's look at the law society. That's a fair point. The, the law society is an elected body of lawyers that help govern their profession. The College of Physicians and Surgeons has a mix of public appointees and appointees from uh, actual physicians and surgeons who are chosen by their peers. Imagine if Tyler Shandro's law society complaint, which he's awaiting a hearing for, um, was determined by Tyler Shandro. This is what's happening is the minister, instead of having an arm's length body that she says, is, is picking an employee who reports to her to determine if teachers should be a part of the profession or not. And I, I have to say, I think that uh, government should be the sole and trusted with making determinations about uh, any type of ability to continue in their profession. Okay, you're breaking up a little bit there, but I think we got most of what you were saying. So let's pull these apart because I think, you know, the conflict of interest, it's interesting because the allegations go both ways. Uh, the perception of conflict of interest. Um, first of all, do you, do you think that there could be a perception of conflict of interest going from the way we do it now, where you have the union? representing teachers and advocating and, you know, being part of this fight, fighting themselves, in essence, when it comes to the disciplinary process. Do you do you agree there could be a perception of conflict of interest on that side of the argument? You know, I, I think if she actually wanted to get rid of any concerns about conflict of interest, she would move to a more independent body, not somebody who's appointed. Fair by enough. Her. But I'm, I'm saying, do you agree that there needs to be a change because of a potential conflict of interest with what's happening there? Let's just deal with that first, and then we can talk about what a, a better process might be. You know, I think that there's a bunch of different models across the country. Saskatchewan, for example, has five teachers and one government appointee. So if you want somebody from government, you can look at other models. Yes, that yes. Have a but again, the question, issue, the I process don't... that we have now, do you believe that there could be a perception of conflict of interest with the union representing the teachers in these disciplinary proceedings? A perception, uh, sure. I think there's also a very uh, likely conflict when uh, with what's being proposed under the new legislation. Fair enough. Okay. When we take a look at some of the, I mean, the, the, the whole impetus for this, according to the minister, was the case in Calgary, and I'm sure you're aware of this, where uh, the ATA failed to inform police about a Calgary teacher who pleaded guilty to unprofessional conduct charges in this disciplinary process. Um, the ATA says, well, we don't, we don't have to do that. We don't have an obligation to report criminal activity to police. Surely you would agree that any kind of process where criminal activity uncovered by the ATA doesn't have to be reported to police needs some kind of tweaking somewhere. Well, and the part that the minister doesn't highlight is that they informed the minister. They let the government know, and the government didn't contact police either. So I'm fine with having conversations about whose responsibility it is, but for the government to put sole responsibility on the ATA when the government itself didn't notify police, I think is uh, the height of uh, disrespect to the process and to the truth. So I think it's important that nobody wants a teacher who is unfit to be in the profession, yeah. who harms children to be a part of uh, of teaching. Uh, nobody in the ATA, and I hope nobody in the government. But the government didn't contact the police either. Um when we talk about how the different groups feel, I mean, there's a lot of support on the government website, you know, from groups such as the Association of Public Charter Schools, the College of School Superintendents, um, Alberta Sexual Assault Services. Um, is, is there a better process? Is, can we at least have a conversation? I, I understand you don't like the process the way that it's been outlined in this bill, but um, is there a way that we could improve upon the way that we're doing things? I think that what's being proposed, thanks for, for saying that, is a, absolutely a move in the wrong direction. I think this is the least trusted government uh, when it comes to public education that in, as long as I've been alive. So 
moving more responsibility onto the minister when uh, the minister can't be trusted with funding, can't be trusted to build new schools, can't be trusted uh, to, to leave teachers' pensions alone, can't be trusted to give supports to special this is a move in the absolute wrong direction. If the minister wanted to do what she uh, said she was going to do and have an actual independent process like uh, the one for lawyers or the one for doctors, I think we could have a real conversation about this. But clearly this isn't about discipline. This is about harassing teachers. Well, I just had the minister on who said, you know, I mean, this, the system doesn't change in terms of the minister is in the ultimate position now where, I mean, you could say the same thing where, you know, it, it's a political decision based on the minister because ultimately she can overrule the ATA disciplinary process. All the cases still come to whoever the minister may be um, and always have. So that that part of it doesn't actually change. The changes, though, is that makes the decisions. Right. And it will be an employee the minister's going to choose who the individual well to be trusted to make recommendations to her. And I don't think we can trust her to um, uh, have an employee uh, act in a better interest in than we could an independent college or the ATA. So to sum up, your, 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 your primary concern is that there's just not a level of the relationship with education in this province and the trust that the minister has with education in this province doesn't give us the, the, the footing to move forward with something like this um, with open hearts and open minds. Yeah, I think that this over and over again, that they can't be education. Okay, uh, Minister, you're br- or not Minister, uh, uh, Ms. Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us. You're breaking up a bit, but I do appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I think she's... Okay. Oh, sorry, I think we almost completely lost her there. Yeah, phone line was breaking up. Okay, so there's both sides of this argument. So we're going to have a conversation now about flying. And this is this is kind of interesting. I don't know how we got here, but we'll find out. Um, bottom line, do you have a flight booked with Flair for next month? If you do, uh, buckle up. There are worries that things could get really, really bumpy for you. There's talk. Listen to this. There is talk that the carrier could be grounded in Canada because the Edmonton-based airline has put too much control in the hands of its U.S.-based partner. So much control that it doesn't meet Canadian ownership requirements. In the eyes of the regulators, bottom line, they could pull the license to operate in Canada and things could get messy really fast. The deadline, May 3rd. So let's find out what's going on here. It's a very interesting story. We're going to chat with John Graddock, who is a professor with McGill University's Aviation Management Program. John, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time. No problem. It's been a pleasure. So try and help me make sense of this. What's going on? I mean, this all came up last month, I guess, in March. But how did we get there? What What is this situation? How would you describe it? Well, I, th- I think it's a little bit of a murky situation in terms of what the Canadian Transportation Agency has found in its investigation about the role of, uh, of Flair and who makes the decisions associated with, with Flair. And I think that's where... There's been some concern. There's been an investigation and a conclusion preliminarily. Uh, the CTA is saying that it seems that while there's no ownership violation, uh, which are provisions that are in place for the airline operating certificate, there seems to be a control issue in terms of who is responsible for the major decisions associated with the, you know, the ongoing operation of Flair. Yeah, because like you say, when it comes to the ownership rules, I mean, they're, they're partnered up with a company called 777 that's based in Miami. But the way that it works, um, non-Canadian ownership does not exceed 
which is fine. That's good. Um, 777's investment doesn't exceed the 25% cap on any single non-Canadian investor. So when they're talking about ownership, it looks like Flair is meeting the requirements there. Where is the problem then? Board of Directors. You know, and that's where there seems to be an issue. And that's what the, that's what the CTA is focusing in on. Uh, there's five members of the board at Flair. Uh, of those five members, three of those members of the, bo- the board are triple uh, seven partner employees. Uh, so, sixty percent of the board uh, is foreign owned, uh, or it's for as foreign resident, I shouldn't say. And uh, decisions made about the direction of the airline and major financial commitments uh, and major operating practices and routes and stuff like that seem to be, as far as the CTA is concerned. Uh, majority controlled by non-Canadians. And I and I believe that's where the CTA is coming from. The CTA hasn't been very open in terms no. of its information that's sharing. Uh, but, you know, that we're reading between the lines and what's been released in the media that, you know, there seems to be a concern by the CTA that the majority of the, you know, the power of the majority of players' board is American. And like you say, it's all very murky because CTA says, you know, that... This May, May 3rd is the deadline. We gave them 60 days to respond to our concerns. That runs out May 3rd. We haven't received a response from Flair, and we could suspend their license. But Flair says, hey, we're working with the CTA. This is going to be resolved. We're having... So, I mean, like you say, it, it's tough to know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, and, I think, and to, to the CTA's defense on this one, Flair had put together a request to the Minister of Transport for what I would call a, a state of execution mm-hmm. uh, on the CTA order, and they had asked for an 18 month let uh, from the director from the regulation. So it seems that Flair knows that they're in violation of the regulations, which to me is a, is a no no. Uh, if you're asking for an 18 month let, you know it must mean that you realize that there's a problem and you just want to have another 18 months to kind of figure out what the answer is going to be. And the submission that they made to the Minister of Transport, which is public, uh, basically had no indication as to what remedies Flair was putting in place or proposing to put in place to solve this problem. So it really is uh, kind of murky, and so we have to wait and see what the response officially will be from Flair to the CTA and then worry about the CTA making its final decision about uh, the suspension of licenses, potentially, for Flair. I wanted to ask you about that appeal to government. They went right to the minister, and it doesn't talk about, um, okay, we can get back on... I mean, it doesn't really even talk about the complaints from the CTA. They seem to say, hey, you got to give us some time. If you don't, um, uh, the airline industry, which has been hit really hard, is going to be hit again. A lot of people will lose their jobs, and hey, a lot of people are going to have their summer travel disrupted because they've bought tickets with Flair, um, so... This is just a really bad move on your part. Like you say, it doesn't necessarily say, okay, we've screwed up a couple of things. We promised to fix them. It's kind of like, if you do this, it's going to blow up on you. Is that the impression that you get? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, in, in, my, in my terminology, Flair is bullying the government. Okay. Um, they, re- they really are. They're saying, you know, you're going to basically consider suspending our license. Uh, and by the way, we've, be- we've invested a lot of money and a lot of effort to, in- to endear ourselves to secondary markets into into all of Canada, whether it's uh, Abbotsford, whether it's Kitchener, whether it's Lethbridge, it doesn't really matter. So we you know, and Canadians love us, and we're going to use the, the court of public opinion and the fact that we've endeared ourselves to these smaller communities in order to say, you know, change the regulations or let us get away with the regulations that we're breaching. 
these regulations, have they always been in existence? Is this something new or has this always been a condition of flying in Canada? If you want to say you're Canadian owned, these are the requirements you must meet. Has the goalpost moved or has this been a longstanding requirement for all airlines operating under Canadian flags? I've been in the business for 45 years and it's always been there. Okay. So it's, it's, it's nothing new. There was a cap a few years ago that was at 25% total foreign ownership. Uh, and based on moves, and I think Flair was involved in that effort back in, in the late 2010s, um, or a number of other carriers, to raise the foreign limit to 49%. And that took about a year, year and a half, but the government finally did move it. So Flair does know what the rules are, and they know the game that has to be played. They're just trying to be a little fast and loose in terms of trying to get this one through. Where does this go? What do you think the outcome is, John? I mean, if you've got a ticket for May 4th on Flair, are you getting to your destination? (laughs) It won't happen on the 4th. You know, I think that Flair Flair has a couple of alternatives. If the CTA does, in fact, issue a, uh, a violation, uh, they, they, one of the options is to suspend the license, but there's also an, uh, there's also an appeal that Flair can make to the Transportation Appeal Tribunal of Canada, uh, and that that tribunal will in fact review the CTA uh, decision, and Flair can make submissions to that tribunal, and then that tribunal's decision uh, will remain final. So it is, you know, there, it's it's not just going to be May fourth. It could take a couple of weeks beyond that. But you know, if you're looking at a, a flight in June, July, August, you know, and depending on the level of risk that you're willing to take as a traveler, uh, nothing may happen. Something may happen. So <laughs> if, if you're very risk averse, don't travel on Flair. If you are willing to take some risk, get some travel insurance. Get some, you know, get a, get a, pay with your credit card. Um, but you know, there could be some turbulence in the air. Wow. Uh, fascinating times. John, thank you so much for the insight. Appreciate it very much. Great. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. So there you go. That's the situation with Flair Airlines. Earlier this morning, I asked you all to try, to try your hardest to remove your disdain for Justin Trudeau from this next discussion. And you failed miserably. The text line was, I think he should go to Ukraine. I'd like to see Trudeau in a war zone, all kinds of things like that. Okay. Try again. Work with me on this one, okay? Just sit back for a moment, close your eyes, and imagine we're talking about, I don't know, Pierre Polyev or Leslin Lewis, or I, I, I don't care. Pick your, pick your politician of choice, whoever it might be from whatever party it may be. Um, do you think there is value in having that person, Canada's leader, the prime minister of this country, travel to, the, uh, to Ukraine just like Boris Johnson did, uh, just like the leader of the European Parliament did. Um, recently, they made headlines. They traveled to Kiev and met with the Ukrainian president. Johnson actually went for a walk through the streets of Kiev with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Yeah, it, it was a moving display of, I, I guess, defiance and, and solidarity. It, it absolutely was. Uh, and from the minute he did it, there's been a big debate about whether or not that's something that should happen here. Should Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister again, do that? Is there value in doing that? We're going to have a discussion about that topic with Simon Miles, who is an assistant professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University in North Carolina. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Shay. Hey, and congrats on the uh, March Madness. You guys won it all, right? Tragically, no. Tragically, no. UNC won? Oh, that's right. That's right. We were felled uh, in the semis. Yes. Not close. 
Almost did it in Coach K's last season. <laughs> yeah, oh, what a career. What a career. Okay, anyway, on to this discussion at hand here. You you make the case that, yes, Trudeau would do well to visit Ukraine. It's something he should do. So, so I'll ask the question this way. What's the benefit? You know, a lot of people see this as performative. It's a photo op. There's really nothing he can do there that he can't do here. And even those who say, you know, it, it's it's a good idea are worried about what kind of, you know, chaos it might cause. So um, what's the benefit to having our, our prime minister show up in Kiev? Well, Shay, as I wrote in the Globe and Mail, um, this is largely symbolic, but symbols matter in international politics, and symbols especially matter in wartime. Uh, they especially matter when, of course, you have one country that's doing an enormous effort uh, fighting the Russian invasion, uh, and also for the whole world as a reminder that they're not alone. Uh, and I would add, by the way, you mentioned, of course, Prime Minister Johnson's trip and Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission. Today, just this morning, the presidents of Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia went to Kiev. They are in Kiev right now, mm-hmm. still, I believe. Um, walking the streets of Borodyanko, which is a sort of bedroom community of Kiev, which has been absolutely destroyed by the Russian invasion. So... My argument here is that a visit by the Prime Minister of Canada, uh, Canada being a country for which Ukrainians have a great deal of affection. I can't tell you how many times on my trips to Kiev I've been asked, oh, do you know my cousin, uh, <laughs> often who actually did live in Edmonton. Um, and uh, uh, that would be a powerful signal to Ukrainians in the world that Canada and the rest of us are not just abandoning them to some kind of frozen conflict. You know, one of the things that I wanted to address when I wrote this piece was that as the war shifts eastward into the Donbass, there's a lot of talk of it becoming sort of a frozen conflict like it's been since 2014, one to which the world could kind of just turn its back. Um, That frozen conflict was killing thousands of people. Uh, It wasn't very frozen for the people on the front lines, but it was sort of allowed to fade into the background. So I think a a visit by a Canadian prime minister, as has been the case with the Poles, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians, the Brits, and the European Union, uh, would be a powerful reminder that this is happening, this matters, uh, and that the world stands with the Ukrainian people as they fight Vladimir Putin's invasion. Um, Let's talk about the symbolism, because you know what? There's value in symbolism, I think, especially in this, in this situation, Simon, Simon, when you talk, there's an information campaign that's going on here, and I think that's part of the reason why Zelensky has been so prominent and has been so willing to walk the streets with Boris Johnson, for example, because that information, that narrative is vitally important to the Ukrainian efforts. I think that's right. And look, uh, as I said in the Globe, the prime minister should not go empty-handed. Right. Right. The Ukrainians need weapons as this, this conflict enters a, a different military phase. They need ballistic missile rounds. They need artillery rounds in particular. They need unmanned combat aerial vehicles, things like that. Uh, so, yes, as any guest, uh, you know, he shouldn't arrive empty-handed. Uh, but they also need awareness and they need the momentum of support to continue. You know, we've seen, for example, out of the United States, more and more and more tranches of military lethal aid coming to Ukraine. Uh, this is a topic of almost unprecedented bipartisanship 
in American politics right now. Uh, one of, I think, one. And so I think the symbolism of showing not just to the Ukrainians, but also to the Russian people that this support exists and showing the Russian leaders that, that people like Justin Trudeau are uncouth that they're willing to go not to an active war zone now that the Russian forces have, have withdrawn, but still to a country at war, um, and very much kind of plant the flag that Canada stands with Ukraine. The other argument, uh, and this always happens in any, I mean, and this is the biggest one that I can think of in a very long time, but whenever there's a, a situation uh, on the ground somewhere, uh, world leaders, Prime Ministers, Presidents have this debate about whether or not they're going to cause more harm than good by going. Um, you know, does um, whatever kind of security operation there is in Ukraine right now around Zelensky, do they need the added burden of now trying to welcome a world leader into the country in the midst of what's going on there? Are they, you know, in a position where the last thing they need is Justin Trudeau dropping into Kiev to go for a walk through the streets with Zelensky? They just can't handle it right now. It's just going to make things worse. Well, that's, of course, an important point to raise, and there are a few issues here. Uh, one, the countries who are sending their presidents thus far are in extremely close communication with the Ukrainians. It's highly implausible to me, for example, that the president of Poland would be in Kiev if Volodymyr Zelensky would rather he weren't. Right. Uh, ditto the leaders of the Baltic states. Two, of course, the prime minister travels with his own security between the RCMP and the Canadian forces. They're able to provide the manpower for these kinds of security details uh, such that it's not like the Ukrainians have to look after everything. Uh, three, I think the Ukrainians have made the calculation that some inconvenience, um, and let's not forget, of course, that the inconvenience of a, of a Canadian prime minister is a fraction of the inconvenience, for example, of, of, uh, of the president of the United States. Sure. Um, you know, this is a fairly light footprint operation, as we've seen with Johnson and others. Um, so, so if those countries have, have sort of made the overtures and, and executed this kind of operation, I think it's, it's obviously something that it would be important to coordinate with and get, get buy-in from the Ukrainian side. I think the Ukrainians see the value of this, of having Zelensky photographed walking the streets, showing, taking someone like Justin Trudeau to Bucha. Uh, to show him the aftermath of Russian war crimes in a community like that. So it's not costless, of course, and I'm yeah, sure it wouldn't yeah. be headacheless either. But there's value to it, and I think the Ukrainians as well as Canadians could see that. Um, let's be completely crass, cold, calculating political animals here and take a look at this from Trudeau's own perspective and Canada's own perspective. Do we need this? I think perhaps our standing on the world stage has taken some hits through this. We've tried to get up to the to the grown-ups table and you know our own foreign affairs minister said militarily we're really not a factor in this discussion. And I mean, you know we're we're leading the charge on economic sanctions, but do we are we in a position where we need to try and prove that we're we are major players in this and try and establish some sort of presence? So I think first things first, Canada, and, and I say this for any listeners who heard my employer but don't know this, as a Canadian, uh, Canada is not a, a major power. Right. Right. Sure. This, is, this is a fact, and that's not going to change. Uh, 
I think that uh, Ms. Jolie did sell Canada short to a certain extent because a lot of the training programs, the multinational training programs that were run in Ukraine in the lead up to this conflict, starting in earnest in 2014, are the reason that we're seeing such high military effectiveness out of the Ukrainians right now, especially by comparison to the Russians. That has to do with both just training on how to use weapons like Javelin anti-tank missiles, but also inculcating the kind of military culture, especially a strong, empowered, non-commissioned officer corps that exists in the Canadian forces in the United States and the UK and other countries as well. Uh, So Canada has actually done something to shape the battlefield uh, that we're seeing right now. It is certainly true that Canada is not in a position to provide billions of dollars of military equipment to Ukrainians, especially not on the timetable with the tempo that the United States has. So let's get back to your original point about, you know, what good does this do for Canada? I think first and foremost, um, it does some good for Canada by doing some good for Ukraine. Canada has a national interest in Ukraine succeeding right now, not surviving but succeeding in beating the Russians back to their borders. A strong, peaceful, prosperous Europe is good news for Canada. That's why Canada joined NATO. That's why Canada has been a player in European politics up to now. Uh, That is economically and politically important and valuable to Canada. Ditto in Canada's interest in the Indo-Pacific, where as countries like China watch what's going on in Ukraine, uh, it is much better for Canada if the Chinese come away from this thinking twice about aggressive actions than emboldened to take aggressive actions. So that's the first and the most important way. Second, look, I think Mr. Trudeau and state visits abroad have a pretty rocky history. Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, take, take, for example, uh, the trip to India. Yep. A quick business-like trip like this, I think, would be good for him politically. Um, he has also in his cabinet a bona fide subject matter expert here in Christopher Freeland. Um, and uh, and this, is, this is someone who has played a really important but very behind-the-scenes role in bringing people on side with major sanctions against the Russians mm-hmm. leading up to this. Uh, so Canada has played a role here. Um, I mentioned earlier, of course, the great affection that many Ukrainians have for Canada, largely because of family ties. Uh, and so I think that the signal coming from a prime minister who is not coming from next door, right? He's right, got to yeah. climb onto one of those, frankly, a little bit rickety Government of Canada aircraft and make his way across an ocean. Um, I think that would be a powerful and well-received signal by the Ukrainian people, uh, especially those who are on the front line of this conflict or those millions of people who have been driven from their homes. Yeah. Uh, Simon, you make, a, you make a forceful argument. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Shay. You bet. That's Simon Miles, who is an assistant professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University in North Carolina.